This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. So today we have J.M. Berger back on the show. He's one of our frequent guests, and it's always a pleasure to talk to him. So first of all, Welcome back on the Loopcast, JM. Thank you for having me back. Today we're going to look at the concept of is ISIS's messaging more important than Al-Qaeda's for potential recruits? And people that have followed JM's work will know that JM has done a lot of research and writing on messaging um, on all aspects, but of course on social media very much so. So... You know, let's look at this concept of ISIS's messaging potentially being more on point than Al-Qaeda's for recruits. Um, first of all, why don't we do some opening thoughts on this topic? Well, I think that what we've really seen is is an evolution of, you know, the jihadist movement in general and its media in particular. And to some extent, tracks with technology and sort of the broad use of media by people. We live in a era now where, you know, people can very easily put together very professional looking kinds of videos on, on their home computers in ways that, you know, just weren't possible before. Um, Al-Qaeda always used whatever technology was available to it. So it produced videos on, on VHS. It, it made uh, documentaries about Bosnia. It made documentaries about its, its general uh, mission and purpose. And what we've seen, you know, much more recently is that the messaging has really taken a sharp turn over the last couple of years. And partly it's, it's just this technological thing where it's easier to be much more adept, create something that looks very professional. But also I think, you know, really ISIS has changed the, the message. They've changed the, the storyline and they're telling a different story than Al-Qaeda used to. And I think that doesn't get enough credit for, you know, their, their current success. And just being so excited to talk to you about this topic, I completely forgot to tell our listeners your background and sort of your titles. So I want to do that because, um, you know, we always have new listeners that might not know of JM. So JM is the editor of the terrorism site Intel Wire, which um, if you're on Twitter, he always is doing his briefs. So look at, at the Intel Wire Twitter handle. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Project on U.S. Relations with the Islamic World at Brookings Institution. And he's also also the author of two books. His first book was Jihad Joe, Americans Who Go to War in the Name of Islam. And he's got a new book out. So if anyone hasn't heard about that yet, I highly recommend reading it. It is a fantastic read. And it's ISIS, The State of Terror, and it's co-authored with Jessica Stern. So there you go. It's a lot to announce because this man has a lot he's been doing, especially lately. He's been busy. <laughs> well, I appreciate the uh, announcement. And the, of course, we're, you know, happy to have the book mentioned anytime. So this concept of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, they, they both have different concepts when it comes to their ideas. And, you know, we always hear about... ISIS um, battling what they call the near enemy and purifying the Middle East from the near enemy. So it's um, not Islamic, but uh, Muslim governments and, and leaders that they don't agree with and so forth. And then we hear of Al-Qaeda liberating the Middle East from what they call or what analysts will call the far enemy. So this idea of the root cause basically coming from the U.S., um, the root causes of all the evils in the Middle East. And I thought we could look at this a little bit because it does play into the messaging somewhat. Yeah, I mean, the far enemy kind of formulation was really the reason for Al-Qaeda to attack the United States in the first place. Um, over the course of years, you know, Al-Qaeda had risen out of different jihadist movements that, that were more localized, including Egyptian Islamic Jihad, where Ayman al-Zawahiri had come from. And 
you know, these groups were fighting very strong authoritarian regimes that, that were very oppressive. They, they cracked down in, in ways that, you know, the West would find appalling, I think, justly. Uh, you know, you just round up hundreds of people and jail them. And uh, they would deploy their militaries on the streets against their own people. And these are, you know, a difficult enemy to fight. So Al-Qaeda was small. It was a, a terrorist group. It was kind of an elite vanguard group is how we think of it, you know, in, in the world of extremism. And they were setting the pace and they could not, they perceived that they could not fight these local regimes directly with great success. So they decided, uh, and the rationaliz- rationalization to some extent, but also part of their reasoning is that uh, these regimes, these corrupt regimes in the Middle East that they, they hated and wanted to overthrow were being supported by the West, by the United States. And striking at the United States was a way to degrade the support for those regimes and, and to change the political dynamics so that the United States would withdraw from the Middle East and create openings for Al-Qaeda. And, you know, this is the whole premise is really based on an understanding of Al-Qaeda as a, as a group that is not strong, not powerful. It is a tool of terrorism in, in general is a tool of weak parties. You know, you don't use terrorism if you can raise an army and take over a country. Uh, you use terrorism when you can't do that. So in addition to terrorism itself sort of proceeding from an assumption of weakness, the choice of target also also reflected that. I mean, the, the far enemy ultimately was based on a conception that we can't beat the near enemy. We can't beat these regimes that we believe to be apostate and we believe are oppressing Muslims. And so we're going to do a symbolic battle abroad instead of trying to deal with the problem at home. And ISIS has really changed that dynamic. And, you know, um, we gave them a certain amount of opening to do that by our presence in Iraq and allowed them to fight both the far enemy and the near enemy at the same time. Cause you know, we were there, we were trying to prop up a new government and we were there, we were in the, in the theater. And what Al Qaeda in Iraq has done though, is, is it's really focused on the local problem in, in a much stronger way. And as it evolved into the Islamic state, that local problem began to spill over the border into Syria and where ISIS has really distinguished itself and, and in what you see in its messaging is that it is very focused on fighting that near enemy and they will address the far enemy. They will address the United States. They, they are, will pick a time and a place to do that very cautiously. But, um, you know, their, their overwhelming focus is on this local theater and where they think they can win. And they are doing a pretty good job of it. I mean, you know, the, the coalition has slowed their advances and, and, you know, arguably is holding them in a, a stalemate right now, but they are holding the territory that they took last year. And so overall, all this contributes to a projection of strength. And they're saying, you know, unlike Al Qaeda, which was recruiting based on, you know, this idea that we are the underdog, we're David and we're going to fight Goliath. Uh, ISIS is Goliath fighting Goliath. Actually looking at that. So there is a certain personality or certain events that will push someone towards being part of a terrorist organization, of course. So looking at Al Qaeda and this idea of the far enemy, the underdog battling the West, um, and then looking at ISIS battling the near enemy, do you think maybe potentially the popularity of ISIS now is brought on by grievances of people that may have wanted to react to the near enemy, so these oppressive regimes, and Al-Qaeda wasn't providing that, but now ISIS is? Well, ISIS has definitely exploited local politics, and, you know, their their resurgence they were they were pushed down after the U.S. surge and uh, after the rise of the Sunni awakening movement in Iraq, which which really undercut their ability to appeal. They had turned people off of their violence, uh, you know, and and ultimately had been forced to really retrench in, into a very much uh, reduced position. And 
what they were able to do after the U.S. withdrawal was exploit the political divisions that, that we left behind, particularly with the, the Maliki regime, which was, uh, you know, really did a lot of things that exacerbated tensions between Sunni and Shia. And one of the key things they did was they failed to keep promises that had been made to the members of the Sunni awakening that had fought al-Qaeda in Iraq. And so those people felt betrayed, and this created an opening for, for ISIS to leverage. So a lot of the rebuilding that ISIS did after we left Iraq uh, had very little to do with al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is operating on this more global stage, and, and ISIS was building from this local base. And talking about local bases and stages, the idea of territory is very interesting when you look at both ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Of course, you have this concept of creating an Islamic state. And Al-Qaeda had stated that they wanted to create an Islamic state. But when you look at the way they operated, holding territory other than, say, training camps or safe havens didn't seem to be their number one goal. It sort of seemed like the far goal, the the goal at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. But ISIS, of course, territory is very important for them. So I was wondering if we could discuss this a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, for Al-Qaeda, this has evolved over time. So, you know, the original Al-Qaeda was really just a terrorist organization. Aside from its training camps, it wasn't really interested in controlling ground. And after September 11th, after our invasion of Afghanistan, and, and we brought the hammer down on the organization, and it sent people out from Afghanistan and Pakistan to bases of support around the world, where they worked with groups that had local insurgent kind of goals. And, you know, those groups eventually became what we now refer to as the Al-Qaeda affiliates. Those groups were a lot more interested in holding territory. And they have done so at various times and in various quantities. And what we've seen is that they generally haven't been real successful for various reasons, often due to external uh, intervention, support from the United States. You know, in Mali, we saw the French went went in to drive out AQIM when they seized a pretty big chunk of territory. Uh, in in Yemen, it's been up and down. Uh, certain areas have been held by AQAP and then lost and then held and then lost. In Somalia, uh, they were Al-Shabaab, the Al-Qaeda affiliate there, was able to hold a lot of territory for a while, uh, but it's slowly kind of been beaten back. And I think, so, the difference with ISIS is that it's laid claim to the caliphate, the, you know, that they said that they're not just creating like an Islamic emirate or a state or a proto-state or just being warlords in control of a place. So they're creating a very specific entity the caliphate and they have to control an appreciable amount of territory to to do that so they've tied territory to their credibility in a way that that al-qaeda affiliates previously hadn't and you know it's that makes it more important for them um you know the timing of the caliphate announcement came you know it was was very closely tied to its seizure of mosul and i think that that's where you know, that's kind of the crucial linchpin of it, of the credibility of his claim to the caliphate is that, uh, you know, it, its ability to hold Mosul. If they lose Mosul, they won't necessarily quit their claim, but it will be harder for them to sell it. The other thing that really is different um, between ISIS and the Al-Qaeda Emirates is that they're really invested in the process of, of creating a government, making it a state, really having institutions um, you know, and I mean, we see these images that come out and sometimes they look ridiculous to us of, you know, a police car with the black flag emblem on it or a nursing home with the black flag emblem hanging on the wall. And all this stuff is important to them. They are, they are building a nation. They are interested in building a society. And when you look at, you know, we've seen some intercepted uh, communications between AQAP and AQIM talking about how to govern and, you know, the content of those is really kind of cynical. It's like, you know, well, you should really make sure that the trash gets collected because, you know, the people will support you more if you do it. We're, we don't, we aren't really interested in that, but you should do it. Whereas ISIS, I think, is much more interested. Its adherents and its recruits are much more interested in doing the business of, of statehood. They want to run these institutions. They want to have traffic cops and have trash collection and have nursing homes and police and, 
you know, and you can really, you can see their enthusiasm for it with, you know, the branding, just how much they, the emphasis they put on this branding, um, their propaganda emphasizes this stuff over and over and over again. So, you know, for them, state building isn't just a, a something you do because you have to do it while you're working your way toward a greater goal. It's, it is the goal. Looking at this idea of like municipal, um, administration, I guess we could call it that for ISIS, Islamic State, you know, they brand it really well. But on the other hand, you hear accounts coming from the region that potentially maybe it's not run as wonderfully as they claim. So, I mean, how capable really are they of doing just the everyday duties to keep a society up state running? That's a crucial question for us. Uh, you know, they, a lot of, uh, the information we get out of ISIS territory comes from ISIS itself in a carefully staged, stage managed way. Um, you know, they've obviously made it extraordinarily dangerous for journalists to operate there. Uh, they're very conscious of spies. They control, they control the flow of information. So they are able to create a portrait of a society that is very utopian. Everything's great. We've got all this food. Everybody's happy. There's justice, there's, you know, stability. Um, you come home at, you know, one of their videos says, if, appealing to foreign fighters says, like, you know, you go out in the day and you fight and then you come home to your family at the end of the day. And so that that image is, is really important to them. And if you look at some of the reporting we see, particularly uh, some of the great reporting that Liz Sly from The Washington Post has been doing out of, you know, Mosul and Raqqa talking about the conditions there, we, we have seen indications that those conditions are not anything close to the idyllic presentation that we're getting from ISIS. So, I mean, I think that's a place where their messaging is really vulnerable. I think that, you know, in as much as we can turn our intelligence apparatus to really kind of expose these these incongruities to really show what's happening there, uh, you know that can that can really undercut the appeal that the group has if we can if we can do it in a very credible and well documented way. So I mean, of course, part of the idea of the show is to see how the messaging of ISIS and Al Qaeda is with bringing in potential recruits. So let's just say I'm someone that might want to be a potential recruit to ISIS and I'm maybe in the West and I'm reading these accounts and hearing that, hey, you know, things aren't as wonderful as ISIS's media center is claiming. So A, I'm going to either say, wait a minute here, something's fishy, or B, I might get that idea of, well, you know, I'm going to go over there and help out and get it back to running the way it should be. So how does this messaging of the reality versus what ISIS's media center is producing, how does that conflict with a jihadi-minded individual that may be having these ideas to travel to the Islamic State? Well, there's a certain number of people who, who aren't going to be dissuaded. I mean, one thing you see in extremist groups of all kinds is, is what you would call selection bias. So you get information from, you, you know, and especially it's very easy now in the, the age of social media and, and the internet, you can find evidence to support whatever belief you want to have. <laughs> so, you know, if you really are convinced that ISIS is doing great, you can go out and find evidence to do it, and you can find reasons to discount evidence against it. But, you know, you, that's for people at a certain level of radicalization. And, you know, one of the mistakes I think we make when we're talking about the radicalization process is we give up on a lot of strategies because we think, uh, you know, people just magically become radicalized and there's at some point they're just in the network and this comes up with the social media discussion i've seen you know dismissal of of suspension of accounts it's like well you're suspending these accounts but you're just getting the people who are least engaged with isis or are being blocked from getting its message and what's the point of that the point of that is that you aren't born an isis supporter unless you're actually born in isis territory so you have to be introduced you have to be pulled into this this community and this this information flow somehow. And so if you, you were able to introduce, uh, you know, an element of doubt, if you're able to credibly present information that discredits ISIS, that shows them to be liars, that shows them to be not the, the paragons of strength that they depict themselves as, 
I think that there's a, there are people that that will reach. It's not going to completely reach everyone who's on this path and it's not going to stop the entire process. But I think some people will, will see that and they'll back off. They'll, they'll take a step back from where they're going with this. So I think this is the perfect opportunity to look at both Al-Qaeda and ISIS's use of social media. Of course, looking at the times when Al-Qaeda was, I guess you could call it at their peak, 2001, say near September 11th, I'll say that's their peak in a sense. But we didn't have Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and all of these things that are at ISIS's, um, you know, they can use these for anything now. So, you know, how does that work for or against these two different groups? Well, it's been working against Al-Qaeda because they have been slow to adapt to the new realm. Um, Al-Qaeda didn't get on social media as quickly as, as uh, everybody else did in the world because they had operational security concerns. They preferred to use the jihadist message boards, which were the, the old school, you know, between 2001 and, and about 2009, that was where you went if you wanted to find out about Al-Qaeda online or if you wanted to connect with the group. Message boards are, are moderated discussion areas. You have to have a password to get in. You might have to have a personal referral to join. Um, and if you create trouble, you could be thrown out. You could have your posts deleted or edited or you could be completely ejected from the forum. So it's a great way to control the information that your supporters are getting. Um so the explosion of social media onto the scene uh, was was not something that jihadis immediately flocked to because they were comfortable in this in this forum system, and there were two really I think really critical things that that moved uh, jihadis off of the message boards and onto social media. And the first one was Omar Hamami, the American who joined Al Shabaab, uh, became disenchanted with their practices, and he took to social media to sort of raise the alarm. He said that they were going to kill him, uh, and you know made a plea to Al Qaeda over open channels because he didn't have any way to contact them directly. Uh, he went out and said, you know, these guys are going to kill me. I need your help. And then he went and got on the Twitter to to push that message, um, and. When he did that, a lot of other Al-Shabaab members got on the Twitter, partly to, out of curiosity. They right, wanted to see what he was doing. Some of them wanted to push back against what he was doing because Al-Shabaab perceived this as, as pretty destructive. Al-Shabaab was an early adopter of social media. They had their own Twitter account. Um, they recognized that Hamami was doing damage to their image, and so they allowed their members to get on and, and start pushing back. Then a bunch of Hamami supporters got on and they, you know, were, were defending his message and attacking Al-Shabaab and, and, and its power structures and the things they thought were wrong with it. And, you know, this was sort of like a rapidly uh, spiraling out of control, just like more and more people getting online, you know, because of Hamami um, and, and the rifts that he had kind of opened up in the, in the movement. And, and part of the reason that he went to social media is because the forums would not allow him to express his concerns or problems. Uh, he, he was censored on the forums. And so social media was a way for him to put out his message without anybody being able to stop him. Uh, it's around the same time as ISIS was starting to, to reform and come up, there was some controversy on the forums about it. Uh, and, and a particularly prominent longtime forum member named uh, Abdullah bin Muhammad who used to tweet under the handle strategy affairs. That's how he's known. Uh, and that was his, his username. Uh, and he had took a dim view of, of sort of the changes and the rise of ISIS in 2013. Um, he was seeing, he believed that ISIS had been infiltrated by, by evildoers, which, you know, not, not evildoers in the sense that we did, you know, uh, bin Muhammad thought it was the Jews, but, uh, you know, he, he felt ISIS was going off the path and that they were creating a problem and a challenge to Al-Qaeda. And when he started to express that view forcefully in the forums, he was banned for, for having that opinion. But he had been a very important forum member. So he went to social media. He went to Twitter and opened up an account and 
you know, very quickly attracted an audience of, of tens of thousands because, you know, he was saying things that the power structure in the forums didn't want people to hear. So that really led to kind of the wholesale adoption of, of social media by jihadis. And, you know, once you get onto social media, it's an open platform. You can't, you, you can, well, I assume we'll be talking about that later, but, uh, you know, you can't easily shut down somebody just for disagreeing with you. Uh, you know, so the forum administrators didn't have any power to silence, uh, bin Muhammad. They didn't have any power to silence Hamami and jihadis. It turns out like many other people want to be able to speak their minds and want to be able to have some, some free exchange of information. The foot soldiers want that, you know, the power structure doesn't want to encourage that, but you know, as this stuff really, these conflicts really opened up. You know, you would hear this and, you know, I've, I've recounted a few times now, but I, it's always good stories. So I'll do it again. You know, at one point and I was talking to a jihadi on Twitter about Hamami's case and, and, you know, he said to me, well, why shouldn't jihadis want freedom of speech? And, you know, I thought that was a remarkable statement. Uh, and it really showed that there was a radical change happening in this movement. Um, you know, when you're, you're Al Qaeda, the original Al Qaeda pre, pre, prior to 9-11, you know, it's a secret society in many ways and you swear blood oath of loyalty and you take your orders and, you know, there are going to be discussions and disputes, but ultimately this is a top down kind of thing with a very controlled environment. And, you know, what we're, we've been seeing over the last couple of years is really the, transformation of jihadism from that kind of elitist model to a democratized populist model. And I think that that has really is, is the change that Al Qaeda has not been able to adapt to. And this popular movement of free speech um, in the jihadi realm, do you think that is partially a reason for the popularity of ISIS now because we have this flood of fanboys and actual jihadis that are out there tweeting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely part of their appeal and you know, what ISIS has done is it's been pretty canny about how it, it employs social media and how it controls the environment. So it's developed alternate ways to, to control the conversation. Um, some of these are, are sort of technical gimmicks such as, uh, you know, the apps that they've deployed from time to time to try and automatically tweet and sort of project their message very loudly and drown out people who might dissent. Some of it has to do with having a very large cadre of, of committed activists who do nothing but, you know, their job is to tweet all day. And so they're out there constantly, like, pushing the ISIS message and pushing back against dissent. And, you know... What ISIS has done is it's sort of created an environment where you feel like you have that freedom, but uh, it is not really totally free. It's, it's controlled and manipulated. That was actually going to be my last, or not a last question, but one of my questions <laughs> on how free is the free speech of these jihadis, because there are a lot of count, accounts that you know certain jihadis are very much on the message of ISIS, and they just send it out in their own words. But then you hear these reports once again saying that social media is restricted to a lot of people, that everything is watched. So like how free is ISIS free speech if we're really, really talking about that? Well, it depends on who you are and where you are. <laughs> so if you're living in Raqqa and you're tweeting as a, a foreign fighter on behalf of ISIS, um, you know, we've seen some evidence that that's not a very free activity. Um, people who are with the program get to do what they want. They aren't necessarily being supervised 24 hours a day. But we have seen cases where it appears that somebody would go off message and that their, their Twitter account would be taken over and, and given somebody else who stays on message. Um, you know, beyond that, it's a social pressure situation. So... You know, one one thing that ISIS has done to some extent is it's it's created a very robust community on on Twitter in particular, where uh, you know there are people who have significant influence over what happens in the network and who can steer you to or away from someone. So you know it's not perfect, and there is you know you do see some variation in, in what ISIS supporters think online and and how you know how they feel about different things that ISIS does. Uh, but mostly uh, 
you know, they've created an environment where the very committed people can sort of move to the central center of the network and be very well connected and, and popular. And, uh, you know, to stay there, you have to play within the rules. So continuing looking at the social media realm, we've talked about Twitter and um, the forums, the message boards, but, you know, we've got YouTube, we have Ask FM, which seems to be quite popular with the jihadi-minded individuals. So how are these being leveraged by both ISIS and is Al-Qaeda leveraging these other social media platforms as well? Al-Qaeda does have a presence on all of these platforms. Uh, it's playing catch-up. So the thing that ISIS does better than Al-Qaeda is it's organized. Um, you know, it has really, uh, it devotes resources to it. It has people who, who are really responsible for nothing else except to be online all day and, and tout their lines. Um, you know, uh, we do see a lot of uh, spillover into other platforms. The environment is different on each one. So on Facebook, it's possible to be a an ISIS supporter who's on Facebook, but it's not possible to set up a page, uh, you know, a, a fan page where people who support ISIS can gather and meet each other. Um, Facebook has really cracked down on that kind of activity. And while I'm sure some stuff slips through, I got to say, the last time I looked, it wasn't very much. Um, so then you have uh, other social networks that have varying degrees of participation and each of those is kind of looking for ways to, to push back. So ask FM has had a, a substantial uh, presence from ISIS supporters. They've used it really very aggressively. Uh, it changed ownership recently and then has been cracking down on them more, but there's still a lot of them there. Uh, so, you know, they're still feeling their way through this problem. Each social network kind of starts off with a presumption that, their social network is going to be a force for good in the universe. <laughs> and then at some point has to be confronted by the terrible reality that, you know, it's not always going to be a force for good. And so, you know, each, each one faces that problem at a different stage in its development. So ask FM is, is a few months behind Twitter on that problem. Uh, you know, and I've seen them, you know, there's a, a lot of ISIS supporters and, and jihadis in general on uh, Tumblr. Uh, you see them on Instagram, uh, although Instagram has, has cracked down on them somewhat in recent times. Uh, you know, we, we've seen that different kinds of jihadist, uh, clusters will go to different places. And like a lot of times that's dictated by your geography. So for instance, in the Balkans, uh, for a long time, uh, jihadist extremists in the Balkans were primarily on Facebook because, most people in Bosnia and, and the Balkans were on Facebook and they weren't, uh, you know, they didn't use Twitter that much. So as Twitter has expanded into that space, then, then we see more of them on Twitter. Uh, similarly, Al-Shabaab, uh, prior to it, it's really being heavily invested on Twitter, uh, was very active on Facebook. And after what happened with Hamami, they really cracked down on Twitter. And, and so a lot of Shabaab members on Twitter went silent. Um, but their Facebook pages mostly stayed up and they mostly uh, continued their work and their dialogue there. So, you know, a lot of different factors will, will affect any specific group, you know, including their geography, their language and the particular thing they're trying to accomplish. And generally speaking, you know, they're going to use whatever technology is at hand that they can use. I know you alluded to Al Qaeda catching up to the social media sphere. But looking at what they are doing as opposed to the Islamic State or looking at both of them, comparing them, is Al-Qaeda using social media? Like, Are they looking at the strategies of ISIS and learning and doing the same thing as far as their messaging and their leveraging of social media? So are they using the same methods or are they approaching social media completely differently than the Islamic State ISIS? So AQAP is probably the most far along in this, and they have been emulating ISIS's tactics. They've started using bots. Uh, they've created a lot of new accounts. They have daily news moving out over social media, uh, particularly on Twitter. Um, Shabbat al-Nusra has been trying to play catch-up. They, they started off stronger than ISIS on social media because they had a very big organic following. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of people supported Shabbat al-Nusra, not just uh, because they're out of Al-Qaeda, but they saw them as fighting the Assad regime. They saw them as a force for good. And, and many people still do see them as a, a force for stability in, in Syria. 
So they had a large base of organic support, but what happened was is that ISIS outperformed them over time because they approached it in such a systematic way and because they have the people who show up every day. That's really the the secret to their success is they have a bunch of people who show up every day. And so Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is starting to emulate that. Al-Qaeda Central is still uh, really its, – its use of social media is extremely limited. Um, Al-Qaeda in the, Arabian, in the uh, Islamic Maghreb uh, similarly is, is way behind. That may partly be due to uh, – you know, sort of the regional variation issue that there was less adoption of social media. Um, Boko Haram, uh, had, had very primitive media operations up until, until it really started dealing with ISIS. And it's, we've seen them upgrade pretty substantially as a result of their interactions with ISIS. Uh, so each, each branch of Al Qaeda has kind of a different take on it. And, you know, that's also something where you can, you can point to a difference in, the effectiveness of what people do is that each each branch of Al Qaeda really has its own media strategy, uh, independent media operations, and ISIS, when it absorbs, when it announces an expansion into another country, one of the first things you see, frequently not not in every case, but in many cases, what we've seen is that you know the first thing that happens is the media operation gets upgraded, you know, very visibly. And so that's one of the strengths that they have is that their brand is much more unified, you know, even, even when it's spread out over different areas. So, uh, you know, ISIS in Libya just put out a, a video a few weeks ago that was extremely similar, both in quality and content to what ISIS central puts out. Um, ISIS in Egypt in the same way is, is really, uh, you know, their media operation operations just took a huge leap forward when they joined up and, I think we're going to see the same thing with Boko Haram. We've seen some indications of it already, although we haven't seen it at the same volume as some of these other places. So something that we're really starting to have discussions about because of this issue of the narrative and how seductive it might be to certain individuals is this concept of countering the narrative. Looking at what we just talked about with the differences between AQ and ISIS's way of approaching the narrative, especially on social media. How can we counter this message if there are these different means of the narrative? And, and as you said, the different branches of AQ have their own strategies. It's not a unified element like we're starting to see with ISIS. So how can you best counter a narrative of both AQ and ISIS when you have so many different elements out there? Well, I mean, you know, the best way to do it is to, there are, are two things that ISIS does that we need to get to do to counter their narrative, to counter their messaging initiatives, not just the, you know, the content of their narrative, but their ability to put it out there. So the first thing is that we need to show up, right? So that's, you know, I just said, as I just said, it's like the, the biggest strength of ISIS is that it has people who show up every day and and do this every day and don't get bored and don't get tired and don't take vacations and you know that that's that's why they have had a lot of the success they've had so we need to do that too uh you know when we talk about a lot of these conversations about suspensions on twitter and you know it's whack-a-mole and it's pointless and blah 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 we should just not bother you know well if we're not going to bother then we're not going to be able to do it i mean suspensions you know, in in the study that Jonathan Morgan and I did recently, uh, we found that suspensions were having an effect, but to keep having the effect, we need to keep doing them. So, you know, we need to show up both uh, to push back on their distribution channels, put pressure on them, but also to put out countering narratives. And, and that part is obviously much harder uh, when you get to the content. Um, so the second thing that ISIS does is that it, it, deploys a lot of people. And so it can pursue any angle that it, that it finds expedient. So it will recruit using different methods in different places. It'll have a different pitch to a different audience. They have people whose job it is to individually stalk and, and, you know, groom someone as a, as a sexual predator would, uh, you know, to try and get them to, to join the organization. And so we need to, be willing to go out and, and be out there in all these different ways. And, you know, when you, the conversations I have with people who want to do counter narrative work and who want to work on this stuff online, 
they want like one big solution that's going to just take care of all <laughs> instances and one counter narrative that's going to take care of everything. And I think I'm increasingly of a mind that that's not possible, that we really need to uh, diversify what we do against ISIS as to match the diversity of what they're doing to recruit. And obviously diversifying in that way also allows you to expand out and deal with other groups. So, you know, if you have, if you're approaching this as we're going to tackle each of these channels individually, then what you will have is you can, you can adapt that to Al Qaeda or you can adapt that to, you know, a new group that forms or a group that's not jihadist at all, but maybe is right wing or racist group. Going back to Al Qaeda and ISIS in the cyber realm, do we see them battling it out at all together, like against each other? Is this something that we see on the different platforms of social media or is this not happening at all? It used to happen more, uh, you know, in the, especially at the, during, uh, 2013 and, and early 2014, as the split between ISIS and Al Qaeda was really intensifying, we did see a lot of argument back and forth, uh, you know, not attacks necessarily, but really just like battling. And then there were some activities, you know, hacking and, and stealing of data and, you know, each for a while, both, uh, ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra had, you know, their versions of WikiLeaks that would leak embarrassing documents and audio from the other side. ISIS was a bit better at that than Al-Qaeda was. Um, so, you know, there, there was a lot of that kind of back and forth and, as ISIS has sort of reached critical mass and with the declaration of the caliphate, it's sort of closed ranks. And I, I see less debate, you know, between among the sides, uh, than I used to. So that may be partly a function of, uh, you know, the direction that my research has gone in, uh, because I, I have, you know, uh, 20,000 ish ISIS accounts that I monitor. Uh, they, I can, be vulnerable to perceiving that they're drowning out some of the other voices because I I don't have the same volume of uh, stuff to watch. But it does seem to me that there's there's a little bit less uh, back and forth. And when there is a back and forth, it's often ISIS deliberately courting uh, Al Qaeda supporters, trying to to win them over to another to their side. So, for instance, we saw some initiatives recently pointing towards Somalia. And Al-Shabaab, where, uh, you know, there was a recent report from Voice of America that really suggested that Al-Shabaab has become very distanced from Al-Qaeda, is not communicating with Al-Qaeda Central anymore. And uh, so we've seen ISIS trying to exploit that and making, you know, real bids to get support from people in Somalia. And they do have a lot of supporters in Somalia. So where there's a, where there's a contest to be had, we do see them going back and forth. Does it help or hinder recruitment and also... What about the idea of being both of these groups being technically engaged and, for instance, like the cyber caliphate? I mean, how does how does that affect the whole picture of these two organizations? Well, recruitment seems to be going pretty well, particularly for ISIS. Uh, we don't have as much clarity on, on how well it's going for for Al Qaeda and its affiliates. Um, I think that, you know, right now. What's happening in Yemen and uh, Saudi Arabia is is going to be a bonanza for AQAP in in all likelihood, but that's going to be a lot of local dynamics at play there. And you have ISIS trying to warm its way into that theater uh, with some success, so it's not a slam dunk. Um, they do, you know, we do see these guys using social media for recruitment, um, especially people in the West. Uh, most Western recruits, you know, have some interaction over social media that, that leads them into a situation where they're trying to join these groups. Um, can you repeat the second part of the question? Well, oh, I was just wondering, cyber caliphate. yeah, the technological aspect of it all. Yeah. Well, ISIS is really, uh, both ISIS and Al Qaeda have recruited hackers at different times and Al Qaeda was involved in, you know, trying to develop some hacking capabilities, uh, prior to the resurgence of, of ISIS. And, uh, a key player in that effort defected to ISIS uh, fairly early on. And a lot of the uh, center of gravity on, on hacker-type activities has moved in that direction. To, so ISIS is really very aggressively courted hackers. Um, they have moved some of them to, to Syria uh, and Iraq. Uh, others operate overseas. 
And, you know, they've done a very good job of, uh, they've been, they've been adding capacity for quite a while and focusing on training for quite a while. And so my main observation of this is, you know, aside from these kind of high profile, but low tech kind of stunts, like the CENTCOM Twitter hijacking, um, it seems to me that they've been adding capacity at a much higher rate than they're spending capacity. So I have some concerns about that, about what, you know, the longer term plan on that is. Looking at messaging as a whole, how important is messaging for both ISIS and Al-Qaeda? So in my mind, I can compare it to advertisements we see on TV. So maybe a brand of shoes or some product that a company really wants you to see, hey, my product's fantastic. They're going to put commercials on TV. They're going to put advertisements in print. And there's this idea of if it's in your face so much, you're going to want that pair of shoes eventually. Uh, or there's this saying in Hollywood that any media coverage is good media coverage, even if it's it's bad, but it's still publicity and your name is getting out there. So looking at these modern concepts that have nothing to do with terrorism, do they apply to messaging of ISIS and Al-Qaeda? Definitely. I mean, terrorism is messaging, ultimately. Uh, when you're talking about just terrorism, you know, the, the old Al-Qaeda model. Um, I mean, terrorism is not ultimately about presenting an existential threat to the target. It's about changing the politics of the target. So, you know, the September 11th attacks, which was by far the most ambitious thing that the original Al-Qaeda ever did, uh, you know, I don't think anybody had any illusions on their part that that was going to cause the United States to collapse, at least not at their strategic thinking level. Um, it's designed to change the politics of, of the, the target audience. And so it's all about the visuals. It's about the spectacle and it's about creating fear. And, and that's really all messaging function. Now, because what we're seeing now in both Al Qaeda and with ISIS is that we're seeing more hybrid kind of organizations. So for Al Qaeda right now, it's, it's more hybrid insurgency slash terrorism. Whereas ISIS, I think, you know, we probably have to concede that they're like a proto state at this point. You know, they're not, they don't have the full qualities of a state that, that we would require to really recognize them as such, but they, they really have a lot of qualities of state. So, you know, they're like a, a state slash terrorist organization. And up until fairly recently, a lot of their focus was really on uh, that state, that sort of uh, central state. But now we're seeing them expand overseas. And depending on where they're going, in some places, terrorism is more important than others. So, uh, you know, so I think that, you know, marketing and branding are really very important elements of, of most modern terrorist campaigns. You know, there was a time when an anonymous uh, terrorist striking out of the darkness had a certain kind of concept. But even if you go back to a case like the Unabomber, ultimately what the Unabomber was trying to do was put a message out there. And so the media component of what he did was, was a huge component. And, you know, ironically also led to him being caught. Um, I think that, you know, that a lot of the, what uh, particularly ISIS is trying to accomplish in terms of statehood and legitimacy does really uh, heavily rely on the messaging component. Um, you know, and I think Al-Qaeda, maybe not so much. Uh, I think that they would probably benefit from learning that lesson. But, you know, certainly if you look at AQAP in Yemen, I don't think that they have a legitimacy problem locally. You know, uh, there, there's a lot of tribal relationships. They've been there for a long time. People know them, uh, and are either with them or they're not with them, uh, with ISIS because it's like such a broad international appeal. And because they're also, you know, sort of rose up out of, you know, the perception that they rose up out of nowhere. Um, and because they're trying to cobble together a real, you know, challenging coalition i think that their messaging the messaging component is much more important for them in their in their process of conducting insurgency and and attempting to run a state so continuing to focus on just isis for a second looking at the big picture does the united states really have realistically the capabilities to influence the islamic state in any way and when i say that i mean big picture so not just the fanboys on twitter and supporters and so forth but 
the group as a whole? Well, I mean, you know, I think at this stage, no. Uh, There's a lot of complexities that go into that question. Um, You know, on the one hand, ISIS is trying to build a a state. It, It wants to have legitimacy as a government and uh, if you look, you know, at the most recent issue, issue of their English language magazine, there's a piece by John Cantley, who's a Western hostage, who's become a spokesman for them, uh, that sort of like talks about, you know, the possibility of a truce. Like, oh, well, you know, are you going to and, and, and the, the conversation about a truce is really a conversation in, in Cantley's piece about legitimacy is like, you know, you can't have a truce unless you recognize the Islamic state's a state that has a legitimate right to be there. And so I think that, uh, you know, to me that, that was kind of a very interesting development, but at the same time, ISIS is also, uh, an apocalyptic group and it believes, you know, whether it's, it's leadership believes this, certainly a lot of its membership believes it. And a big part of its appeal is, is that it is taking part in the end times final battle for the earth. And, when you look at a group that has that orientation, uh, it's often difficult or impossible to negotiate with that because how do you, what do you have to say that's going <laughs> to compete with the end of the world? That is very true. There's not much more that you can talk about after that. <laughs> well, I want to look at AQ a little bit now in the sense of there's this debate that's been going on. I know you and David had a really hot conversation on the Loopcast about this a while back, but this concept that Al Qaeda is not really dying out, but it's lost its oomph, let's put it, as opposed to ISIS. And some of this debate has focused on ideas that it's, like I just said, outdated, old fashioned in its ways, has less charismatic leaders than the Islamic State. But on the other hand, this seems a tad bit oversimplified in my mind. So, I mean, what is your estimation of this? Like, what is really going on in this little debate that we do hear about every now and then? Well, you know, I think it's pretty instructive to look at uh, the Ku Klux Klan and the evolution of, you know, white supremacist, white nationalist kind of ideology in the United States from the KKK model, and the, you know, which started you know, at the beginning of the 20th century and, and continued on and really had its height kind of in the 50s and 60s as a terrorist kind of extremist group. And then it was supplanted in the in the 80s by neo-Nazi groups that really took the oxygen out of that movement and became much more, you know, they dominated sort of the direction in the conversation and also were more inclined to be violent and, and to be doing things. Uh, and the KKK never went away. You know, it didn't die. Uh, it's still there. Um, it's just much less relevant than it used to be. Um, it's still capable of violence. Its members do, do try and plot violence. It's also capable of, of influencing political conversations. But ultimately, the, the center of the gravity for that movement uh, moved away from the KKK to neo-Nazis. And I would argue that it's probably moved again, but I don't want to get too far off in that direction. So, you know, when we talk about this, this competition between ISIS and Al-Qaeda, you know, I think it's important to understand that what we're talking about is who, who is going to have the dominant view and, and who is going to, to influence the direction of the movement the most. Um, we're not necessarily talking about Al-Qaeda itself expiring, certainly not the affiliates, Al-Qaeda Central, I think, you know, I, there's a kind of open question right now about how robust the actual Al-Qaeda Central organization is at this point. We have had one message from Amin al-Swahiri in the last year um, and virtually not a peep from Al-Qaeda. I mean, not that's not completely the case. We had a couple of very small things. But really, Al-Qaeda has not responded to the challenge that ISIS has presented to its legitimacy at all. And how central is Al-Qaeda central? <laughs> yeah, well, or how much <laughs> of it's question. left? I mean, we don't, you know, there's some ambiguities in, in what we have on intelligence. And, you know, there are various little things that, you know, have raised the specter of, you know, maybe they've, maybe they're moving out of Afghanistan, Pakistan, maybe they're already moved. Maybe AQAP is the new AQAC. And it's like, so, I mean, Al-Qaeda central, I mean, might, might have an existential problem at this point. And I don't want to overstate that, but I think it's certainly, there's certainly reason to suspect that. 
but Al Qaeda, the brand and Al Qaeda, the affiliates are, are not going to just evaporate because of ISIS. I mean, I think that the question is, you know, where's, where's the center of gravity? Where's the new blood flowing to? And, and who is going to present the greatest challenge to, to international order? And, you know, I think, you know, as I said in, in that debate, that you know, did get out of hand. I still feel bad about that. Uh, you That's know, actually but, one of my favorite shows. I love listening <laughs> to it. It was awesome. <laughs> I, I felt terrible we'll about, about it. it. I, I mean, I, I felt good about my views, but I felt bad about how they were expressed. But, uh, but you know, but I, I feel like, you know, the point of view that I had then is held up pretty well now. I mean, what we're seeing is that, that ISIS is really a, a tremendous threat to the international order. And it's, it's consuming a lot of the, the, oxygen it's it's taking in the recruits and it's sort of setting the direction for things now you know there's a lot that can change uh, on a moment's notice in this uh we've seen jabhat al-nusra has gone from weakness to strength to weakness to strength uh in syria and they're currently in a, in a position of some strength um aqap stands to benefit greatly from an open civil war in yemen but that's not guaranteed either i mean it's very early you know the, the Saudi strikes really complicate that issue. And, you know, and if you look at what's happening there, you can also see that ISIS may be playing a role in, in shaping that conflict because, uh, you know, and this is, there's a, this is kind of fraught with ambiguities. I'm working on an article that, that addresses the ambiguities in full. But, you know, ISIS has claimed that it carried out that March 20th bombing on Houthi mosques in Sana'a and, in some ways, you know, I started thinking about that as kind of the shooting of Archduke Ferdinand moment on this because it, it triggered a response from the Houthis, it triggered a response from the Saudis that is going to appears, you know, that we're, we're marching toward a war now. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, we're not 100% sure that ISIS is behind it. You know, there are conspiracy theories within Yemen. Uh, there are... Uh, ambiguities and ISIS has not provided evidence to support its claim, but AQAP denied it. ISIS is the presumptive uh, suspect in that case right now in that bombing. So, you know, if ISIS is responsible for touching off this war, it may have other agendas in this. Uh, if nothing else, it certainly is a, a player in that conflict, even if it has, even if it does have a very limited strength there. We don't really know what its strength in, in Yemen is. We know it has some people in Yemen. Um, but what we've seen is that even with, a, even if they do have a limited number of people, they're able to have a disproportionate impact because of their choices of targets and their, their willingness to do things, terrible things that even Al Qaeda won't do. Last question, which kind of stems to what you were just talking about. Do you think we might see a resurgence of attacks on the part of Al-Qaeda? So, like, AQAP took responsibility for the Charlie Hebdo attacks, basically as a way to compete with ISIS and, and gain their notoriety again. Do you think we might see this back-and-forth type well, I don't know. Theater playing out, yeah. I mean, yes, I think we we are likely to see some of that, but I think it's also, uh, you know, there used to be a, a pattern of reporting on the Taliban a couple of years ago, where it would be the Taliban would hit somebody, and it, their stories would say this was a revenge for this thing that happened, and that's this thing that the Americans did, and you know, it's really it's not it's not revenge for that thing. It's what the Taliban does. That's their job is to attack. The Americans. So, you know, we don't have to ascribe a specific cause to every single individual attack they do. So in the same way, the Charlie Hebdo attack is what AQAP does. It's, it's consistent with messaging and, and recommendations that they've been putting out since before ISIS really broke with Al Qaeda. So it's not clear that that was a competitive move. Um, Although, you know, there is a definite, there's definitely a possibility that is if Al Qaeda wants to, is looking for ways to reestablish its relevance, you know, uh, to, to try and get more, attract more of the kids, uh, you know, that's a way that they can do it is by, is by carrying out spectacular or frequent terrorist attacks in as much as they have the capability to do that. So, you know, that's definitely something we want to watch and we want to be concerned about. But I think that if you look at the activities we've seen from Al-Qaeda affiliates, you know, particularly uh, the Charlie Hebdo attack and, and the recent attacks by Al-Shabaab, it seems to be that they are more 
about the internal dynamics and, and problems of problems and priorities of those groups rather than a deliberate attempt to compete with ISIS. So it wouldn't surprise me to see activity ramp up in a way that reflects that competition. But I think so far I'm, I'm kind of cautious about how to read the, the tea leaves. Well, as you know, you've always, you've been on a guest on the show a number of times. So I will give you the opportunity to have a last say on something that we might not have touched on. So I'm just going to hand over the floor to you. Oh, well, I guess if I was going to have a last say, I would say that you should really check out my book with Jessica Stern, uh, ISIS, the state of terror. It is available on Amazon and everywhere that books are sold. You can, it has its own Twitter account now, which is at ISIS book. And, uh, you can go to my website, jmburger.com to get a link to buy it. Well, that's a very good endorsement and I will put in a second endorsement because I have read the book and it's, it's really fantastic. And there are not a lot of books out there on ISIS because it's such a newer phenomenon. So it's one of the leading first books out there. So go get it, go get it, people. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, JM. I'm happy to anytime.